You're listening to a special edition Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting the pace earlier of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number of Fed officials. banking for system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Well, hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to the latest edition of the PA Forum that we have here at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. My name is Raphael Bostic. I'm the president and CEO of the bank. I guess a guest host for this version. I'm really excited to be here with Jason Lusk. Uh, Jason is the distinguished professor and department head of agricultural economics at Purdue University. And he's come to join us to talk about food, which is something that I know is probably near and dear to many of your hearts. And in fact, you can't live without it. So Jason, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you here. You've been a professor for a while. A little while, yeah. I guess I finished my PhD in 2000 and had opportunity to work several places, but for the last year and a half, I've been at, been at Purdue. Well, you were a professor at Mississippi State University for a while. I was, yeah, I was, not too I was far from just, here. just in Mississippi last week visiting. Uh, Mississippi State's not in our district. It's actually in the, in the St. Louis district, but the state is pretty integrated, so everyone's aware of all the things that are going on there. So we'll count you as one of ours. Well, well, good, and I, I should note too, my in-laws live for a while here in a Atlanta suburb, so I've I've spent spent a lot of time in the in the city and really enjoy it. Well, very good. Well, welcome again. It's good to have you here. I wanted to start our conversation by talking about food at the sort of a global from a global perspective. Now we know that the population on the planet is growing considerably, and some estimates have it even growing by 60 percent by 2050. There's some research that the Kansas City Fed has published, which says that we need a dramatic increase in our productivity in terms of food per acre of land, such that we're producing maybe even twice as much food as we are right now. And then finally, there's all this climate change stuff. And you hear people talk about how changes in the climate are going to affect what we can grow and where we can grow it. In the context of all that, how do you think about global food systems and what are some of the biggest challenges that, uh, that you think we face? Yeah, well, of course, it's an easy problem, right? We need more food using less land, less labor, less water, right? <laughs> you exactly know, it's a, right. It's a big, big, complicated problem for sure. You know, I think this challenge and the concern of being able to feed the world's population is one that's been with us for many centuries, dating probably back to at least Malthus, if not before. And continually over the over the years, people express these concerns about population growth. The really good news is that we've been able to rise to the challenge and continue to feed the world's population. You look at the world we live in now, actually we have some of the lowest rates of global poverty uh, ever, lowest rates of malnutrition that we've ever seen in, in terms of just percentage of the world's population. So one question is, how do we get there and how were we able to achieve that? And the answer, by and large, has been we've figured out ways to be a lot more productive. You know, adding science, technology, innovation to our ag sector, we've figured out ways to produce more using less. In fact, in countries like the U.S. today, we actually have less land and a lot less labor in U.S. agriculture, even though we're producing almost twice as much as we did, say, in the late 1940s. So I think science and innovation has to be one of the ways we solve this problem. It's not just the question of food production, as you alluded to, it's a whole complicated mix of things now, too. We, we got concerns about environmental problems, whether it's climate change or soil runoff or those sorts of things. There's also concerns not just about 
you know, whether we're, we're going to have enough food to feed people. But in some cases, we have people that might be a little overfed. And uh, what do we do about problems of obesity and diabetes? And these are all big challenges. And I, I don't know that there's any going to be any silver bullet to solving any of those. But I think uh, one way to think about it is we've got to have all cards on the table. And frankly, I'm a little bit of a contrarian in a lot of the food policies that are proposed to address a lot of these problems, that whether it's the you know move to more local, more organic, these are all fine and good things. But in terms of, of policy prescriptions to solve these big global problems, probably not going to do much to move the needle. Well, I'm going to we'll get back to that. All right. Because there's been a fair amount of work that's been done in the system on the local and the regional food. Mm-hmm. But, but I wanted to actually go back to something that you said about when we think about food and the challenges, that is not just scarcity. Sometimes it's also abundance mm-hmm. as well. And I've become more sensitive to that. And, you know, in the 6th District, uh, we have many cities that routinely rate as the least healthy, the most obese. Mm-hmm. And so this question about how food is managed and, and how it's distributed and who accesses it is really, really important. Yeah, I totally agree. I, you know, I think one of the challenges there was with food, too, is often some of those problems of obesity and food access often tend to be correlated in a lot of cases with other adverse economic outcomes, poverty and, and use of, say, SNAP, food stamps, if you will. And so I, th- I think that's one important thing to think about is some of the policies people propose are things like, you know, we want fat taxes, for example, or we want to make, quote, unquote, unhealthy food more expensive so people buy less of it. You know, those policies are often, you know, the other thought of that is they often impact people on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So I think some of those policies can be somewhat regressive in that sense. It's just a real challenge, I think, about and dealing with some of those issues. And this is not an easy thing to do either. But in a lot of cases like that, I think thinking about economic growth, you know, giving people hope to, um, if they invest in their education and health, that I'll have some longer term payout is one part of the puzzle there, I think, in terms of thinking about how to improve, you know, these adverse health outcomes in, in neighborhoods where people haven't had a lot of economic opportunities. So that's interesting. I definitely think that there's uh, some truth to that. I've also been made more aware of distribution challenges Mm -hmm. and conventional wisdoms about the types of foods people that live in poorer neighborhoods might want to eat. One of my favorite studies when I was a professor at USC was by a colleague, and he had a, a team of researchers that went to convenience stores and grocery stores in poor neighborhoods and in more affluent neighborhoods. And he was... I guess he probably wasn't surprised. I was surprised at the extent to which the types of products completely diverged. When you went to a convenience store or grocery store in a lower-income neighborhood, you often wouldn't have fresh food or Mm -hmm. or vegetables and things available. You wouldn't have low-fat milk or no-fat milk. And so the choice set that you have is totally different. So when we think about these taxes and things, they are only going to, to work to the extent that the folks who we want to consume less of the, the quote, bad goods actually have access to the good goods because if they don't have access <laughs> sure. to them, there's really not much that you're going to be able to do. So I think your point is is well taken. Now, now this kind of gets to, I want to talk about your work. So okay. the, the big picture, we've done some of that. And I'm going to try to like whittle this down to sort of a very simple uh, description of what your your underlying hypothesis or thesis is. And it's basically that the so-called industrial farming gets a bad rap. All these people complain and they need to stop all this <laughs> crying about big ag and really acknowledge that there's been some progress and, and success there. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, first of all, is that really how you would say it? 
and then sort of expound on that a bit. Yeah, I think you said it in a provocative way, but I, I would I would agree with it. <laughs> um, I don't want to be misconstrued as saying there aren't some trade-offs there and there aren't some adverse outcomes, but I like the way you said it. The, the sort of commercial agriculture in large respects has gotten a bad rap these days. And I think getting back, we talked about these global issues of how you solve all these food problems. You know, to be honest, I think one of the solutions in a lot of places is further intensification in other words, growing our food more productively on a smaller area is one way to make sure that we have as small an environmental and, say, you know, um, you know, global warming kind of outputs per unit of production is by further intensification, not by spreading those over more units. So I do think that there is a lot of sort of uh, a lot the public can sort of learn by trying to engage a little more in these discussions rather than just what they sort of read and casual understanding in the press. So tell me a little bit about sort of how this is a had been accomplished. When I talk about the U.S. economy, I often go back to the 1850s, where most U.S. workers were farmers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is certainly not the case now. There's been a lot of change in farming to get us to a level of productivity. You're talking about almost doubling productivity since 1940. That's amazing. I've not really... I don't think a lot of people are sensitive to how much change has happened in the ag yeah. space. That's right. So if you go back, say, 100 years ago in this country, about 40% of the U.S. population worked on the farm. Today, it's about 2% are involved in agriculture. So it's really dramatic change. And there's this kind of romantic ideal that we should have more people involved in food and ag. And that, that might be okay on the margin. But one challenge I'd have there is look around across the world at which countries are rich and which countries are poor. And poor countries are going to have a lot more labor in agriculture. One of the evidences of a country that's developed and is relatively rich today is countries have figured out ways of moving population from the farm to to other areas that are somewhat productive. So how did it happen? Well, maybe first let me further emphasize how dramatic the change is in, in a little bit of an example. So let's take a commodity like corn, for example. Let's say we wanted to enjoy the same amount of corn that we actually consumed this year but we wanted to do that using 1950s technology. And by 1950s technology, I just basically mean yield, how much corn per mm-hmm. acre. We would need three times the amount of cropland, the three times the amount of acreage of corn if we wanted to actually enjoy the amount we actually get to consume now, but we're doing it using 1950s technology. So that means you know a whole lot less land that we need today. It means less fertilizer, uh, less pesticides, you know, fewer tractors, uh, less greenhouse, you know, all the things we get to save now because we figured out ways to be more productive. And that productivity has occurred in a variety of different ways. In some cases, it's better genetics. So finding those seeds and animals that are just a lot more productive has been one big piece of the puzzle. It's new knowledge, figuring out ways of tilling the land that's better and more productive, applying tractors rather than horses and mules, for example, has been a pretty dramatic change over time. And then we have more modern kinds of innovations like biotechnology that I know there's a lot of controversy around and happy to talk about that if we want to talk about GMOs and biotechnology. But yeah, that's, I, was gonna, I was definitely going to go okay, there. Okay, good. So. But that's, that's been one of the examples of those technologies. And then even today, we have all kinds of, of new innovations, precision agriculture, we're using GPS and satellite to measure what's happening on, you know, not just acres, but on every square meter of land so that we can be more judicious in our use of fertilizer and herbicides and those sorts of things. So, you know, it's not just one thing. It's a lot of science innovation that's been applied that's that's to contribute for that increase in productivity. I'm glad you went through the full range because when I was preparing for this, I was thinking, okay, what kind of innovations are we talking about? And I, mm-hmm. I knew about the tractors, and I've talked to a bunch of agriculture 
uh, businesses, mm-hmm. and they've been talking a lot about drones. Yeah. And I like the phrase precision agriculture, yeah. right? Because you can use machines and technology to go plant by plant, almost leaf by leaf, mm-hmm. to really know what's going on. That's good. And that's one kind of innovation that I really get. But then you get the other kind, which is innovation on the actual output itself, right? That changes in output. So when we say an apple, today it's not your grandmother's apple, right? <laughs> right? There, yeah. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on there, and that gets to the pesticides. Mm-hmm. It gets to sort of some of the, the genetics and the, the bioscience that has been introduced. And that second part seems to have engendered some pushback mm-hmm. from some consumer circles. Um, why do you think that, that there's that kind of concern? I think there's two reasons. One, I think there's kind of an inbred reason, if you will, to be somewhat skeptical of new foods and new food products. You know, Michael Pollan had this book called The Omnivore's Dilemma. And that dilemma of the omnivores is that we have to be, you know, risk-seeking enough that we'll try new foods and we get to a new, a new environment. But you know what? You eat a bad mushroom, it can kill you. And so <laughs> we have to also be cautious of new foods and new food varieties. And so, you know, over time, we talked about that change in labor that's in agriculture. And it's not just the farmers themselves, but those rural communities. There's just a lot less connection with food and ag today. And people don't know as much about where their food comes from. So when they hear about these technologies, whether it's GMOs or sometimes pesticides, they're very unfamiliar. It's not obvious why farmers may be using them. And so there's there's this kind of skepticism about what it's doing. And then you kind of layer that on top of increased skepticism and concern about you know corporations and these these sorts of things that... In some cases, the, the concern might be justified. And so I think this is really why it's important to look at data, look at science, look at the evidence and see where some of that concern may be justified and in a lot of cases where it may not be justified. Let's take the issue of like pesticides, for example. You know, it just seems like why, why does a farmer have to use pesticides? We put that apple out there in the grocery store and you have an apple that has a, a wormhole in it and one that doesn't. Which one are you going to choose? Well, you want the one that looks nice and pretty and oh, clean. And we've all done that. That's right. right. We've, all, we've all put that piece of vegetable or fruit right. back down when we right. saw something that we so didn't So how do you get that pretty looking one? It's it's uh, by using pesticides. That's how, how you get those. Uh, and it's how we get partly get the higher yields. But, of course, we, we want our products to be safe. We don't want to be consuming things that are going to cause cancer or cause undue harm to us. And, you know, I, I think the FDA has a strict regulatory process that companies have to go through to demonstrate safety. Um, it's not to mean we can't do better and, there, and that we can't find new ways of doing things. I think that's part of the science and innovation, too, is trying to find new kinds of, of protection for plants that, that don't involve certain kinds of pesticides that people may be concerned about. Actually, GMOs has been one of those that actually has led to ways of protecting plants that, that don't require the application of pesticides on fields like we used to have. And so, you know, this this thing that people say they're really scared of is actually the thing that's allowing the farmer to use a lot less, not all pesticides, but insecticides in particular. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me push back a little bit on this, only because, like with the pesticide, like if you spray mm-hmm. a field, when I was growing up, we washed every piece of vegetable and you could mm-hmm. or, or fruit, and you felt like you could do something to minimize the likelihood that that, that innovation mm-hmm. was going to actually affect you. But when you have a genetically modified tomato, mm-hmm. right, there's no way to get around the actual modification or that change. And 
the thing that that I think about in this context is like steroid use in sports. Mm -hmm. right? And we knew, everyone knew what the short run effect was gonna be. We knew your muscles were gonna grow faster, you're gonna recover faster. But there was no research, because no one had actually lived with it for a very long time, to know what that impact was likely to be. Is there an analogy with that in this context of the, the GMO? Like how, how should we feel comfortable about mm -hmm. potential long run impacts? in an environment where you know, we really haven't had a chance to live through that. Yeah. Well, I think your first point is a really good one, that the sense of control is probably one of the things that drives aversion to some of these technologies. And, and in that sense, I think that's one of the great things about our market economy is it, it provides people choices. And unfortunately, some of those other choices sometimes cost more <laughs> if we want to avoid them. Uh, yes. But at least there are choices in the market uh, for them. You're right. Everything has long-term risk, and sometimes it's hard to quantify all those risks. And that, that's true of using biotechnology, but it's true of conventional plant breeding that have, have been around for a very long time as well. And so I think we really just want to look at the evidence, and we look at the currently approved forms of biotechnology, for example. What we can see is we've been using this since the you know, early 1990s, so over 20 years now, and still no evidence that the ones we've at least approved have caused any adverse harm to people. And the thing to think about here is what, what, are, what are these biotechnologies doing that we've created? And in a lot of cases, they're replacing a single set of genes with something else. And those genes are conveying often resistance to a herbicide or resistance to some kind of insect. The interesting thing you may, may or may not know is in a lot of these seed companies have done is you can pr produce those same kinds of traits through conventional plant, plant breeding. It's just much more expensive and takes a much longer time to do it. So I'm, it's not obvious to me that the, the GMOs are doing something that's un well, ungodly or, that's, <laughs> you know, or that's qualitatively different. Yeah. It's just in terms of the yeah. techniques and methods. That's an interesting, that's an interesting observation. But, but I might go back to, if you don't mind, one of the things you said is I think a lot of these new, new traits that have happened through GMOs or, or some of these others you related to pesticides are really the benefits have, have been of the sort that the farmer knows the benefits. Farmers are, are big fans of these technologies. You look at all the major commodity organizations, um, they're fans of these technologies. But I think really where consumers might think more carefully about them is when they start producing outcomes that provide a tangible benefit to the consumer. So there's a, an apple that's about to hit the market now that's been genetically engineered so that do, it doesn't brown. So we talk about like these, ever, ever. That's right. So it turned turned off the gene that that causes browning in the apple. So think about food waste or just the appearance of the apple that's sitting in front of you. Now, you know, I can imagine some consumers might not like it, but th this is a, a an attempt to change something to change the quality for the the final consumer. That's very interesting. I'll have to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, it's uh, called the Ar Arctic apple. The Arctic apple. That's right. Okay, so I, I we all just learned something. I'm gonna keep an eye out for that in the stores. Um, I wanted to uh, now turn a little bit to one of the things you said earlier about potential solutions to mm -hmm. our our global food issues and and your skepticism about local and regional mm -hmm. food efforts to to really make a dent in this. Uh, a lot of there's been a lot of work at the Fed here and in, in the Federal Reserve system that is called out sort of the local agriculture as a means for building community, helping communities uh, become uh, more uh, resilient and have it be a springboard for broader economic development. How, do you, how would you react to that? I mean, how do you think about that perspective as opposed to sort of where we started about saying it's either big ag or mm -hmm. we're not really going to see much? Yeah. 
Well, I think these sorts of local agriculture, they, I mean, they do provide benefits. Some of them are aesthetic, and some of them do come through in improved quality of, of foods and produce. So th- these are not irrational things to want to do and promote. You know, I, I go to our local farmer's market almost every weekend. Uh, as a kid, I grew up, you know, hoeing cotton weeds and sometimes sitting with my uh you know, neighbor's friends selling watermelons out of the back of their pickup. So this is not something I'm not familiar with. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, and so, I, you know, I also understand the sort of pleasures that come to know, go with sort of getting to know the people growing your food. So I think all those are, are, are really good things. But I think, you know, we think about these longer term sort of economic viability. When we talk about wanting to be sustainable, to me, it means, you know, we want to be able to produce more u- using at least the same or fewer resources. We, wa- we don't want to leave money on the table, so to speak, by uh, avoiding certain technologies or practices that can let us you know, make more efficient use of our resources. And so I think these trade-offs between higher end quality issues and, and some of these may be related to quality af- along with efficiency are important trade-offs. I think one way to think about it is you know, there's a lot of debate and discussion these days about trade. Yes, there are. <laughs> and I it, hear about them a lot. That's right. And in general, I think economists tend to think about trade as being a, a good thing and letting people specialize in what they're good at and trade with each other. And so you know, that, that carries over not just across countries, but in terms of localities. And so when I think about Georgia, for example, or the southeast, I think about things like, you know, Vidalia onions and peaches for whatever it is, the environment that's around here or the cu- cultural and customs, that, that this is something that this region has a comparative advantage in producing. We should let y'all do that. I come from a state in uh, in Indiana where we're apparently good at corn and soybeans. So let's trade those things and let us do well with what, you know, do what we do most productively in trade. I think those things, it doesn't change just because we're talking about local issues. We've come to become a much richer society by specializing on what we can do well and trading with others. And so I think I would just offer that as a counterpoint to some of what are admittedly some positive benefits uh, that come from some of these local food systems as well. So we're just about out of time. So I want to just give you one more one more shot to uh, give us some your, your perspective on the future of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would preface this by saying, from my reading of your your work, you're pretty much an optimist, right? So, <laughs> yes. so if I look at like your, your your most recent title, or I don't, even, I think your most popular book is "Unnaturally Delicious: How Science and Technology Are Serving Up Superfoods to Save the World." That's such yeah. a uplifting, happy type of message. What are you most optimistic about when you think about food on this planet and in, in our communities as we look ahead for the next five or ten years? Yeah. Well, you know, I have the great pleasure of, and I have had the great pleasure of working in a number of universities that uh, sit down the hall from plant breeders and food scientists and animal scientists. And so I just get to see all this really cool stuff they're working on. And these are people that are passionate, not just about increasing efficiency, but about the planet. And they, and they want their kids to live in a world where they don't have to worry about hunger or obesity. And so that's probably where a lot of that optimism comes from. Well, probably just some of it frankly, is born in. but um, I'm guessing a lot of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But I think a lot of it is just being able to see some of the research people are working on and the really passionate scientists we have out there that are spending their careers thinking carefully about these problems uh, and trying to, to, you know, use the gifts they have to think about providing uh, technological and scientific solutions to some of these problems. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I've been talking with Jason Lusk. He's the Distinguished Professor and Department Head of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University. Uh, He's here at the bank to do a presentation at our our public affairs forum 
And uh, it's just been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for coming, and I uh, look forward to your talk. Thanks, Raphael. It's a pleasure to be here. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.